Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to get the chance to learn about Sir Edmund Hillary, because on the show this time, we're speaking with Michael Gill, who wrote a biography of Sir Ed, and that was based on more than 50 years of knowing him. So in the interview, we learn how they met and hear about some of the expeditions that they went on together, as well as some of Michael's reflections about Sir Ed's life. I know you're going to enjoy this, and if you do, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog because there's more than 235 of those. Also in the show notes, be sure to check out the book that Michael did. I've put a link to that so you can easily find it. Now let's get straight into this interview with Michael. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Michael Gill to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know that you had a personal connection and, and you knew Sir Edmund Hillary for a number of years. And so I'm really fascinated about him. He's somebody who's quite iconic here in New Zealand. And, you know, if you go to the shops and you pull out your $5 note, there he is. Um, But I think many of us would never have had the chance to meet him. And so being able to talk with you is going to be really special. But before we get into that, I would really love to find out a bit about your history. Um, So wondering if you could go back in a time machine to say, um, describe your childhood and where you were living when you were quite young, like maybe four or five years old. Well, I'm a third generation New Zealander and I was born in Auckland and I grew up in Auckland. And although I've, you know, traveled quite a bit here and there um, over the years, I've actually always worked in Auckland as well. So like Ed Hillary, I'm an Aucklander. Hmm. And I... um, my mother came from Dunedin, so I got to know the South Island as well. My mother always thought that the South Island was so much more important than the North Island, even <laughs> though she'd ended up living there. So I grew up with that same view. And I, I remember once sort of we used to go down there um, for holidays and visit family down there. But I do remember this one occasion when I was 11 years old. We went to Queenstown to the head of the lake and I saw Mount Earnslaw it sort of somehow got into my brain. And I was very keen on climbing um, in Auckland. It was climbing trees. We used to collect bird's eggs, which is a pretty non-new activity these days. But, um, and I was very good at climbing trees. I could get to the top of any tree um, and where I saw a nest. So when I came to the point where I had to decide I had to have a job in life, I suppose, and I'm I was born in 1937, so there I am. I'm, um, let's say, about 1954. I finished school, and I, the only thing, I, well, I was really keen to travel and climb mountains overseas if I could. And I thought, well, what job is that? And so I thought, well, if I were a doctor, I could, that would probably do it for me. So I did medicine. And while I was down in Dunedin, I used to spend all my spare time with, with a, particularly with one friend, going off mountaineering. And so by the time I was halfway through my medical degree, I was, I knew a lot about the mountains of the South Island and I had all the necessary skills built up. And I was at home um, literally just the day or two before Christmas and I was reading the Auckland Star and on the back was a little notice saying that Sir Edmund Hillary is looking for a person to complete his expedition to the Himalayas next year. Now this is 1959. So I thought, okay, yep, that'll do me. So I hurriedly wrote out a letter and I didn't, couldn't trust it to the mail because it was right on Christmas. So I literally walked up the road, up Victoria Avenue to Remuera Road where Ed Hillary lived and I'd put in his mailbox. Within a, four hours, I had a phone call from this voice, this gruff, familiar voice said, oh, Glaze, Ed Hillary here. I'm, yeah, just been reading. Here, I come up and have a yarn. So I went up there and... Um, and I had, while I was writing what you might call my letter of application, I wrote about it and just gave my background. And I said, I have a, an ape-like build, peculiarly suited to mountaineering. And when I opened the door, Lady Hillary, Louise Hillary was there, and she said, look, we've been absolutely dying to know what this ape-like person looked like. <laughs> In a way, 
so I, I, I got invited on the expedition, which was for a whole, for nine months. Uh, and after that, Ed would always invite me any expedition from 1960 on. He would invite me along. It's amazing to think of the era that you're talking about as well, you know, that, that you just walked up to his house and, and put it into the mailbox. Yes. I can remember the street where I um, lived on, which is now dense with cars day and night. <laughs> we used to drive a trolley across it without even bothering about the traffic. We knew that they were so infrequent, the motor cars, that it was a very tiny risk just to barrel across that road unseen. And you mentioned your mother, um, kind of that South Island was so important to her. Um, did you ever feel a call to, to come back to the South Island apart from studying? Well, not really. Um, somehow I, I also had the links, of course, in Auckland. And one of the links was through to the Auckland University Cramping Club. That was my first year at university. Then I had five years in Dunedin. So when I came back, I, got a, I did my last year of medicine in Auckland, and I got a job in Auckland. Mm. Um, and then I met Ed, you see, and so from then on, I've actually worked in Auckland ever since. So though I've spent a lot of time in the South Island, I still love it. I've never thought of living there. Yeah. yeah. And, and just before we talk about Sir Ed and, and the next stages and adventures, I'm just curious about your first memories then. If, if you said 1937 you were born, was the war something that was front of mind as some of the first memories you have? Well, one was aware that it was happening over there, but um, really to a, a, a child of six years old, it didn't have much meaning. And, um, and I do remember, you know, hearing the, when the war was suddenly over, um, you know, an extraordinary time in a way. And I knew that people went off to the war, but I actually never met anybody whose father died over there. Or, so I never really had any contact with it. It was like reading about it rather than mm. something very real. And then just describing or thinking about Sir Ed himself, because I think here was somebody who kind of burst onto the international scene, didn't he? Um, because the, the summit reaching the summit of Everest was, I think, the day or two days before the coronation of the Queen, and it kind of became quite a big celebration, didn't it? What was your memories of that time? Well, um, certainly, you know, that was much more famous for me than any event that happened in the war, I'd have to say, Uh, simply because there it was, the 29th of May, 1953, and it just hit the headlines all around the place, and it was, of course, an extraordinary story about how the way the Times journalist James Morris got that story back so that nobody knew about it except the Times of London who published it on the morning of the coronation. Which, of course, amplified it, didn't it? Because it became a celebration of the coronation and this achievement that had just happened as well. Yes, you know, they were talking about a new Elizabethan age where suddenly um, England would be you know, the greatest nation on earth again sort of thing. It never quite happened, but um, that was the feeling certainly during those days of the coronation and the climbing of Everest. And you have to, I guess, put your mind in that era in England, you know, post-war, it had been a really difficult time. And then here's the new queen and this achievement that's happened. (laughs) Yes, I'm saying my, my wife, who I met through the Auckland University Tramping Club, um, she had lived in London through to the age of 11, and they came out to New Zealand. Um, you know, she's aged 11, and they were just so pleased to get out of that grey, depressing and post-war environment of England. Yes. And she described how when she first arrived, they arrived off the ship, and they went to stay up in the um, Salvation Army Hostel up Queen Street. And they went down to breakfast in the morning. And the person that was just serving breakfast said, and how many eggs would you like? Now, this was where there was a ration of one egg per week in London. And that, that symbolized it, really. Mm. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget what it was like for people back then. Um, my, my father-in-law lives in London, and so he went through the war um, He's, he's now 80, but he has some memories of that sort of time and things like the rations, you know, that, that eggs were a scarce commodity. We, we just take yeah. it for granted these days. 
exactly yeah yeah so do you remember yourself seeing the headlines or what it, being a mountaineer yourself already it must have made a big impression on you yes oh yes it, you, you know there were banner headlines in new zealand of course and on the, it just filled the media it was um, an, an extraordinary story and i had read about everest a lot and i, I must admit i got it wrong because i thought they have had so many failures i can't see why this one in particular should be a success but there were things I didn't know about it, and the principal one was the importance of um, good oxygen sets on the mountain. But mm -hmm. that, and also, slowly the exact, the more and more the details had been discovered, and particularly through a Swiss expedition in 1952. Um, so, um, yes, it, it surprised me when Ed Hillary got there. I remember seeing him a year earlier than that because I'd been to a lecture he gave, and he and George Lowe, and they were a very um, entertaining couple. They were talking about um, the pre-Everest expedition they'd been on. And um, George was always had a great fund of good stories and made people laugh. And Ed, they were both tall. And Ed had this fantastic face, really, this long face. And he could, it, and it could light up um, when he was, he was laughing or when he was animated. So they made a very good they made a very good impression those two just as they'd made a very good impression of course on the Brits to the extent that they invited them along and gave put Ed in pole position for the summit of Everest. Mm. It's an important thing that you're mentioning though is the fact that many people had been trying for a number of years and so the collective knowledge was building up to the point where it was then possible, right? Yeah. And um you know, when I wrote my book about Ed I sort of because I'd read about a lot, I couldn't help re retelling that story because as I say, in a very terribly and essential good oxygen sets because climb Everest without oxygen is only just possible. And it was not completed until how long, 25 years after the first ascent of Everest that anybody got up without oxygen. Mm. Um, and, Pre-war, it was always the Brits, of course, because there they were, they controlled the access to Everest, which was through Tibet. And if any of the French or the Germans or the Italians said, hey, we'd like to have a go at Everest. And they said, well, we can't seem to manage to find any ways of getting you passports to go through India to get there. So we're terribly sorry about that, but we can't do it. Whereas the Brits could go there any time they felt like it. And just coming back to you, I'm just curious about that time before you met Sir Ed, and you said you went to study specifically so that you would prepare yourself for this type of a career. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. And I never did, of course, pursue that because I always had a medical career. In fact, that's um, how I earned my, um, my income. But I, I was in a position where I could drop it and go off for six months on expeditions. And I did that frequently for a period of, say, 15 years. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's that I guess I always like to hear people's life stories and hear about what they do to prepare so that they have the possibility of doing something later. Because, you know, it's a bit of foresight in a way to be young but then study something that will then allow you to do those things. Yes. I'm saying it wasn't terribly clearly thought out, but the thing that was most important to me while I was a student, you know, the days, let's say up to the age of 23, call it mountaineering was the principal activity in my life that really filled my mind. Mm. So just doing something in the background was a little bit like getting a, holiday job, which in those days was a holiday job, was working on the wharves, um, unloading ships with a hook in one hand, um, hoisting cases onto a crane. Yeah, it's quite different, isn't it? So it's that first different. meeting when you arrived at their doorstep, can you just describe a little bit more about that and, and what those first interactions were like and your impressions of Sred right from the beginning? Well, he was very casual, very easygoing, very welcoming. Um, the, he never had any sort of side to him, Ed. He never sort of felt he was important. He didn't like people who devalued him in any way. That, that certainly upset him, but he didn't need people to um, bow down to him either. He didn't like that. He was, um, 
And so he was just a very easy person to talk to. So we sat down for an hour and I told him the sort of mountaineering I'd been doing. And, um, and it just so happened that that expedition was a most unusual one in that there were three parts to it. It was funded by an American company, World Book Encyclopedia. And they said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll fund this expedition. I was a lot of money. Uh, and the, there were three bits to it. One was finding the Yeti. And the second bit was doing some high altitude research into high altitude at a very high altitude. It was up at 6,000 meters for all through the winter, all through the Himalayan winter. And then there was an attempt on Mount Makalu, the fifth highest peak on the world, without oxygen. And they were all three interesting bits. Uh, so the thing was, and I also happened to have, in the course of my medical degree, I'd actually done a year of physiological research. So suddenly the two things, my mountaineering ability and my physiological training came together for that expedition. I, I have to admit, I have to admit curiosity about the first element of that expedition. Can you tell us more about that, <laughs> the Yeti? Well, the Yeti, um, yeah, I, I'd say Ed, before, I think early on, he knew that that's, people are interested in the Yeti. It's a fascinating story, and I think he had reservations about it. But nevertheless, once it became important, he said, of course, I believe in the Yeti and um, did all the necessary promotion that was required for the media. And I, so we, I can remember when I joined the expedition, I traveled with Ed from Auckland through Chicago, because that is the home base of World Book Encyclopedia. And there was, of course, there were television interviews there. And we had with us on the expedition, a bloke called Marlon Perkins, who was the curator of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And in the interview, uh, there was a huge mock-up of the Yeti, which was um, two meters high and about sort of 400 kilos and really looked pretty formidable, frankly. But anyway, the interviewer said, and Marlon, when you capture this Yeti, what are you going to do with it? And he said, well, I couldn't think of a better place than the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. <laughs> so anyway, there we were. We we're going to capture this animal and bring it back to the Lincoln Park Zoo. All we ever found were some footprints and some bits and pieces which were said to be parts of the Yeti. And the footprints, we, you just track them out of the sun and into the shadow and they suddenly resolve themselves into little fox footprints. Put those out into the sun and they, they melt out and they merge and they look like not a very convincing animal footprint, but everything <laughs> would get by. So that was that and um, people used to bring in Yetis, and then we had a red panda was brought in, foxes were brought in, and skins which belonged to the blue bear, which was a strong candidate. But the truth of the Yeti really is that it's it's part of Buddhist mythology. Um, and there's really no evidence that there is, there is such a beast. And the best evidence ever that there was one was a very, very good footprint, which was discovered by... Eric Shipton, in 1951, on an ex the expedition that Ed was on, Everest Reconnaissance. He wasn't with Eric at the time, but there it was. You looked at this thing, and there was this wasn't sort of there was no melting around it. It was pristine, and it had these toes, um, and that was really interesting. Nobody ever sort of, whenever they people used to doubt the Yeti, they would say, "But what about the Shipton footprint?" And then quite a bit late, in fact, while I was writing my book, I read this account um, in a biography of Eric Shipton and Bill Tillman, who used to climb and explore the Himalayas together. They were famous authors. They were very known to the whole of the British public. And they always had a competition trying to outdo each other. And one of the things they used to outdo each other was their Yeti stories. <laughs> And Eric Shipton apparently got onto this pass and there were some of these washed out, melted out footprints. And he thought, oh, I'll fix old Bill. So he got his thumb out and constructed a footprint and photographed it. And he never actually ever in his life led onto it. 
But speaking to Ed about it, you know, much later, Ed said, yeah, well, you know what Eric was. He, he, was, he always liked to have a joke, you know. So that's the explanation of the footprint. So that was the final conclusion of the whole expedition? Because that was a big part of it, was it? The six months looking for the Yeti? It was a big part of the early publicity. Right. The thing, what you, you might say, well, what was in this for World Book Encyclopedia? And what was in it for them was they had bought Ed for the whole of the following year to go around and visit all their salespeople around the whole of the United States. So every week he would get on a plane, he'd go to a new bit of the United States and all the salespeople would gather there and he'd give them a, an inspirational talk. Mm. So that, that, that was how World Book Encyclopedia used Ed really. Mm. And, you know, Ed didn't mind. I'm saying, he always liked the States. He said he, he'd go to Britain, you, you can never escape as a New Zealander, particularly of that generation, that we are English immigrants, basically. Um, but there was always the feeling that you were sort of, you were a colonial. There was just that nagging feeling behind it all. Whereas in the States, they just loved him. They just liked his personality and he fitted in. Hmm. It's really interesting. And in an era before social media and sort of Instagram and Facebook and, and following the stars, this was a way where they were able to bring a celebrity, someone who'd accomplished something amazing and, and promote the encyclopedias, I bet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it was, of course, the world's biggest selling encyclopedia. It was a good encyclopedia. Yeah, they but, were uh, good. I, I'm, I'm of an era where I, I was born in a time where my parents bought a world book encyclopedia yeah. set. I remember them, A, B, C, D, you know, and you'd look yep. up V, oh, there's the volcano section. And, you know, it was all alphabetical. And, you, yeah, they were a great resource. They used up a lot of space on a bookshelf. <laughs> yes. No, I still have a set here. Do you? Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, they were very concisely written and they, um, they packed a lot of information in a small space. They, they were good. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's a funny thing to talk, though, just even reminiscing the two of us. You know, I've got my phone here. I'm holding it up like the content in the phone these days. We go to Google, but even a, sh a very short time ago, we would have gone to a bookshelf and there was the information. Yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm afraid I don't go to the books anymore either. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to me, the, your description of Sir Ed as well, because it, it comes through in the writing that I've read that, that, cause he's written a number of books and things. It, it definitely seeps through this sort of, um, I, I want to use the word humble, you know, that he wasn't, mm. he wasn't saying I'm somebody special. I just happened to be the first person here who, who did this amazing thing. It, he, it doesn't seem like he ever became over prideful of his own self, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, you know, he knew that as, as a mountaineer, for example, I'm saying the leading mountaineers these days or, or even, you know, go back 50 or 80 years were extraordinary people, extraordinarily athletic in various ways. But, and Ed was, was not a, as good as them in an athletic fashion, but on that expedition, he and Tenzing were the two strongest and best at altitude for climbing at altitude. And that's why they were given the job. And so it was a huge amount of being in the right place at the right time for Ed. What I think was remarkable was that he came away for that and instead of sort of fading into the background or having difficulty living with his image, he somehow grew his image. And, um, and it was his personality, it, just as the Americans liked him and the Kiwis liked him. And he was um, held it through right till the end. And I think that was a remarkable achievement. Mm. What was it that made him different or able to do that, do you think? Oh, I think it's, um, some of it is his innate personality, actually. Mm -hmm. And his, his physiognomy and, um, and he just grew into it. And he, of course, then he realized um, at the, literally at the, during that expedition in 1960, 61, where I was there, that the Sherpa said to him in return, um, Ed said, I want to borrow this Yeti scout here and take it and have it examined by an expert in Chicago. And they said, well, if you do that, you have to give us a school because we don't have a school here. 
And he thought, yeah, that sounds, that's a good idea. I'll do that. So he borrowed the, borrowed the Yeti skull, which turned out to be made out of goat skin, incidentally. And um, he came back and he built a school. And he, th there was this extraordinary acceptance. And it was so successful the way these kids came down. And um, they were thirsting for education. And he said, oh, look, I've done one of these. I'm going to do more of them. And mm -hmm. that became um, the focus of his life thereafter. And I think that's really important to highlight. I was going to ask you about that because he's known for this great achievement in the mountaineering and Antarctica and different expeditions. But then he also gave back to the region, didn't he, by creating these schools and, and other initiatives? He did, yes. And um, because he, um, and then he realized, and again, I was there in 1963. And when we hit the, Everest area where the Sherpas live, um, a smallpox epidemic had just broken out. And um, which is, a bit, it's very, I'd say COVID is a pretty scary epidemic in its own way, but it's nowhere near as scary as smallpox, which kills a third of the people it, it affects. Mm. And we just saw these people and hugely contagious. And you could follow it from house to house. This person develops a fever here, he goes onto that house. Um, his face breaks out in these pox, pox mode. He goes on to another house. And wherever that person goes, he spreads it and the other people spread it. And so he was able to organize an emergency um, fly-in of some smallpox vaccine and was able to vaccinate a lot of people and really did stop it halfway. Couldn't prevent the beginning of it, but it stopped the worst of it. Mm. He said, right, there's... They, these people don't have any medical care of any sort, even most basic sort of, like vaccinations. So he's right. And in 1966, he decided he would build a hospital. By then, he built half a dozen schools, and he went into health next. Yeah, it's an amazing legacy. And and I guess if you're there on the ground, what what was the reaction of the people in the country to him? Oh, they loved him. Of course, he was he became like a god to them, really, because. <laughs> Um, so he he was very fond of the Sherpa people, and they are as a people there. They get almost Westerners very well. Um, they almost as if they have similar ways of thinking. And he had a um, a particular Sherpa who was his foreman, really called Mingmatsering, and they were very good friends. They, um, you know, he could respect Mingma for his abilities in organisation, and if he wanted to build a school, he'd say to Mingma, "Yeah, we." build a school here and so Ming would go out there and he would get the timber cut and he would get the rock men who would come and shape the rock and, and carpenters who would build windows and they would get it all and then Ed would come in and there would be a great flurry of building activity and up would be up would go another school mm. so yes and you know you go up there and he left so he left behind him this organization called the Himalayan Trust is because that was the NGO he used as his vehicle for his aid work in Nepal. Mm. And it's still going and you go up there now and there's lots of people doing aid work up there. Mm. Still an awful lot of it is attributed falsely to Sir Edmund Hillary's Himalayan Trust because he's the person that everybody knows. Yeah, it's really yeah, fascinating. It's really his, his legacy um, has, has had ripples out, hasn't it? Um, I'm involved yes. with um, something called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship um, and mm. just recently joined that. And it, it, it's kind of emerged out of something else called the Hillary Institute of International Leadership, mm. um, which has been uh, finding people across the world who are in mid-career and doing amazing things in their work and recognizing them. Um, so it, it's just an example. And um, Mark Prane down here in Christchurch founded that with Sir Ed um, before he passed away. So it's just an example of organizations that were started or inspired by him that are continuing to do work today. Yes, I am. I'm very aware of the Hillier Institute and down there in Christchurch. And mm. but just another example of the way Ed was regarded was he, the last big expedition he ran was taking jet boats up the Ganges River, the, the Ganga. And I was on that expedition and well, we thought this is a big river and we'll just, you'll get on these boats. We won't see anybody much, but, you know, we'll stop in Calcutta and probably 
have some sort of dinner party there, but otherwise we'll be on our own. But what actually happened was that as we went up the river, whenever we stopped to refuel, there would be a crowd of a couple of hundred thousand people there waiting to watch Ed. Because the message went around over the radios that, um, that Thread Hillary, the conqueror of Everest, was taking a magic boat up the sacred river Ganga. He was regarded as a god, really. He was regarded as a reincarnation of the god Vishnu. They just came. We saw millions of people on the way up. It was an extraordinary event. And when we came to the point on the river where there was a, a waterfall, which was clearly unnavigable by these jet boats, um, we stopped. And there was sort of, people could not understand. They said, but, but why he's a god and he has magic boats? Why don't they just jump up this waterfall? A lot of public interest dropped away when our magic boats refused to jump the waterfall. <laughs> I said, we're not going to risk our lives trying to make a jump. <laughs> wow. How many were on the expedition? We had um, three, three boats and uh, t about 20 people because there's some Indians and um, there was what you might call Ed's old gang of mountaineers. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it was quite, quite a big expedition. It was called Ocean to Sky. And I think he did a book about that afterwards, didn't he? Oh, he did, yeah. He yeah. Did. Mm. So what was it like for you being a member of these expeditions and going off on these unusual, you know, searching for the Yeti or going up the river? And, and yeah, what, what was it like to be one member of the, of the team? Well, it was a, it was fantastic. I must say, you know, I've been wanting to travel to mountain places, and how could it be better that here I was going with Ed Hillary, um, all expenses paid to amazing places. Um, you know, we'd go to a, a place, and whenever, whenever possible, he would find a mountain that had not been climbed, and said, "Okay, you guys, go up and see if you can climb it." So I ended up making some first ascents of some very, very good mountains in the Himalayas, one in the Antarctic. Um, and back in New Zealand, there was this, this big group of his friends who were um, a very happy group together. And so it was, you know, it was unbelievable for me, really. And so I, when Ed said, can you come along? And I would always say yes. Mm. It sounds like there was a big community of people who joined with him or been a part of different things then. Yeah, he did. And once, once, he, once you sort of fitted in the way he did things and the way he thought and he invited you again. It's amazing to trace it back to that letter that you wrote as well and dropped off in his mailbox. And it clearly piqued the interest. Like, what type of person is this? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. And, I, and the thing about medicine, you, um, you know, it... Uh, in those days, there was um, the, the, amount of, the, amount, the money being spent on health was much, much less than it is now. And there was never any limits, really, on employment in hospitals. The, you know, nowadays, everything is, has to be eked out because there's so much more you can spend. But, so I would go away and I would come back and getting a junior job was always easy. You get a job as a house surgeon and as a registrar. But... If you want to go into the more demanding bits of medicine, like um, becoming a surgeon, becoming a, a physician, you really have to knuckle down to it. And you can't just sort of say, oh, I'm going off for a trip with Ed for the next six months. Bye. <laughs> that, you know, that, that was, even then, was not really possible. So I got by on these junior jobs for a few years. <laughs> then I realized I had to do something. I so I um, had done a bit of pathology, and pathology consisted of four specialties, um, and, and that because it was, they were finding it hard to get registrars in pathology, so I always could find a job then. But there still came a point where I had a qualification. And what did I do next? And I, of the four blind branches, I, which was microbiology and histopathology and um, and chemistry, biochemistry, I came back one day and they said, look, sorry, there's no job of any sort. And they said, oh, but the, the biochemist, the chemical pathologist in charge has just retired. 
we'll make you the acting chemical pathologist. And I said, but I don't know anything about it, actually. I've never done anything to do with it. And they said, well, <laughs> uh, we just need someone to fill the job, okay? Yeah, and I said, okay. And, and actually, I stuck with that. And I then I got invited out into what was pri called private pathology, where these were private laboratories, um, which were funded um, fee-for-service by the government, but were definitely private enterprises. So I joined one of those and um, ended up getting very involved with the computer side of things. Uh, and that was, so that was really my professional life for 30 years. And I ended up making more money out of it than I would, for example, by staying at the hospital. So I always liked the story that through my interest in mountaineering, I ended up making up more money than I deserved. Hmm. It's but again, it's just this serendipitous thing of you just, Ed was always very keen on this idea that in life you just have to, you're always looking what's happening around you. And life is always about decisions. I'll try, you know, path less traveled. Um, I'll try, I'll go there, I'll go there, I'll go there. And you don't know where you're going to end up really. It's interesting you mention that because it comes through as a theme in the podcast because I've interviewed more than 230 people and very often the people I've in interviewed have had interesting lives like yours and the theme that comes through is looking for the opportunity and, and having the eyes to see it because quite often I think some, sometimes people are too shuddered and well this is what I do and this is, this is the way but actually being open to look around and say, where is the opportunity here? And then grasp it if it's there. Yeah. Well, that's the story of all the tech, all the major tech startups, isn't it really? You know, there's some traditionally works in a garage and doing something that nobody else had thought of and it grows and grows. Yeah. So I'm just curious, because uh, I think I said at the beginning, you know, I, I never got the chance to meet Sir Ed and, and most people listening wouldn't have had the chance. And I know that you, you knew him for 50 years um, and went on these expeditions. Are there any other stories or, or insights into his character that you think would be helpful for, for our listeners? Well, a, a very interesting landmark in his life was the death of his wife in a plane crash in 1975, which it literally changed Ed for the rest of his life. He was never the same sort of exciting personality that he had been you know I, you know many people confront this business of the death of a spouse but there's very few people who have been shattered the way ed was uh by the death of louise and i'm telling you it was a, a strange story the whole thing in that it was 1975 so ed is how old is he then he's about um 50 55 louise was um she was 45 say and he had decided that he, the, the work he was doing was expanding and going further and further south, really, away from the Everest area, going further south. And he'd gone to this place called Pavlu in the Solu district. And they had asked him to build a hospital for them. So he said, right, we'll do that. And, and he thought, well, I'd like to live with the family in Nepal for a whole year. We'll hire a house in Kathmandu and to build a hospital there's an airstrip there, so we can just fly backwards and forwards between Kathmandu and Pavlu. And everything was going swimmingly, really. The, the nice place set up in Kathmandu, and Ed was in there in March, March the 31st, 1975, and Louise was coming in to join him, accompanied by their 15-year-old daughter, Belinda. And... She was, they were due to arrive in at nine o'clock and nine, 10 o'clock came and they still weren't there. And that, you wonder a little bit what's going on here. And at 10 o'clock, a helicopter was, came over the hills. And Ed said he knew then that something really bad had happened and it had. The plane had crashed within a minute of takeoff and killed everybody. Wow. And, uh, and as I say, it was, was shattered by that. Because he'd never really had a, a strong, any significant relationship before the relationship with Louise when he was, you know, when he was age 31, 32, before Everest. But they got married straight after Everest, three months after Everest. And um, 
and she was just the right person for him. And the and the, there was a story in behind the plane crash because it had been piloted by a Kiwi pilot, and you'd sort of think, well, and what had happened that he crashed? And what had happened was that he had he was a person who was always in a hurry, and he had gone down to the airstrip late, hurriedly hurried people onto the plane, taxied down the runway, hadn't done his pre-flight checks, which you do just to make sure the flaps work, the rudder works, all that stuff, didn't do any of it, just turned on the motor, took off, and he's just in the air, and he suddenly realized, God, the flaps aren't working. Um, and it's you're pretty hard to do anything about that. I'm, they had a pilot who was very expert. He said, it's, it is just possible that with great expertise, you might manage to reland it, but that guy didn't. And um, so that was how it happened. And, mm. and it turned out that, you know, this was a Kiwi pilot who'd grown up in Canterbury and he'd been given a plane at the age of 15. So he treated the plane like a motorbike in a way, you know, he learned to fly it very quickly, very well. And, without too much discipline about things like pre-flight checks. Mm. And he'd worked for a while in, as a bush pilot in Africa and lost his job there because of, um, again, because of this casual attitude he had, which had resulted in two um, problems. And then he managed to get a job with Royal Nepal Airlines. And they hadn't really checked about his background or anything like that. And he was a very good pilot. It's just that he was casual. Mm. So again, that was an extraordinary... Um, it was almost, you, how could anyone be so unlucky that, that Louise was in the plane on that occasion? Yeah, just happened to be in that particular fight. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like you say, that happened, you know, because he, he then had another 30 years or so where he was living, right? Yes, he did. He was, let's say, he was 55 then, he dies, yeah. 30 years because he died at the age of 88. Yeah. Mm. And he always used to, he continued to be very good in public. And his life did settle down to a much better pattern when he remarried. Um, but he was never the same exciting person that he had been. That was, that was the observation of people like myself and had been on those great trips with him. So you think Louise was kind of the, the extra dimension that he needed maybe in his life? Yeah, well, she was because she came, she was um, the daughter of a lawyer, and you can't go wrong if your father is a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and she had, whereas Ed was very much um, from a much poorer background, I'm saying they, they lived on this farm uh, down in south of Pukekohe there, and just a, a very small place, and they always were never had much money. Um, you know, slowly his father built up a bee business and made more money and was actually quite successful with the bee business. But nevertheless, it was a struggle. Ed grew up through the depression. Um, whereas Louise, um, she also was young in the depression, but she just came up in a comfortable house on the right side of Ramuera Road in Auckland um, and just had this light, easy personality, um, and also the sort of judgment that was valuable to him, that Ed would, could, you know, get excited and go off in one direction. If she thought it was wrong, she'd tell him, and, and they'd sort it out. Mm. It was a very good partnership. Yeah, it sounds yeah, like, it. And, it, and it's possibly something that people forget, is that, uh, you know, in, in a... The, the public facing person is, is seen and on TV and things, but often there's people supporting them behind the scenes, right? You, you need, you need that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say Ed, I think he just, as a person, this sort of um, locked into that relationship was fundamental to his being. And so they got married and um, and they went off for a year on a lecture tour around Britain, Europe, United States and um, Louise was there all the time and she just was a part of everything. Mm, that's when I was writing the book, you know, just delving a bit into those, you know, I found a whole lot of stuff about Louise, you know, the odd diary letters she'd written and so on. It was 
interesting for me to write about her because Ed, although he did give her some short tributes, you know, very heartfelt tributes, but he never really wrote all that much about her. So I, that, that was a sort of a gap I felt I was able to fill when I wrote the biography. Mm. Well, tell me a little bit about the book. What was the, the inspiration? Or do you remember thinking, I need to write this? Um, or, yeah, how did the origins of it come about? Well, it came about because um, I mentioned about how Krundi Hospital was there. And for how long? For the best part of... Um, 35 years, it was staffed by doctor couples from New Zealand and, and Canada to a lesser extent. And they used to go up there for two years. And one of the problems was communication and it sort of seemed to break down. So we developed a system with them that we, would, we decided we would have compulsory exchanges of letters once a month and that um, some someone in New Zealand would write to the doctors once a month and they in turn, they would write a, a letter once a month. And they developed into um, an interesting exchange of letters really, because I, I was the person who was doing it at the New Zealand end and um, we had this changing population of doctors at their end who went into this very remote community then, uh, hardly any trekkers, for example, and they wrote fascinating letters. and. One day we had, we had a reunion in 2006, which was organized. And one of the organizers was a woman, um, Lindley Cook in Christchurch, who, and she'd been collecting interviews and photos. And she said, we should do a book about this. And we looked at ways of doing that. And anyway, it, it ended up that I got the job of doing the book because I'd already written this one book, which I'd written back in 1969. And I, I liked writing, or it certainly interested me. It was always hard work. But um, so I ended up in 2011, I published a book, which was called Himalayan Hospitals. Um, and it, each chapter was about a couple, how they got there, how, what they discovered in their two years up there. Same time, after Ed died, he placed all his papers in an archive at the Auckland Museum. So that was 2008. And I went up there and had a look. And here's these 50 boxes crammed full, which really not many people had seen much of. Certainly no one had read them through from beginning to end. So I did that. So when I'd finished the first book, Himalayan Hospitals, I, I knew there is a biography rating, waiting to be written here. And I, so I did that and came out in 2017. And, you know, it's a um, fascinating business, writing. You, you wrestle with it. And, and in the end, you end up being reasonably pleased with it. And, of course, you publish, you publish it, and then you get the feedback. And um, so it has a life of its own. Well, I think it's wonderful. I did a history degree as well as my law degree. So I think recording the past is really important and, you know, that's in a way why I do these interviews as well to record people's life stories and hear a bit of their journey. So yeah, congratulations on writing the book and in the show notes, we'll put links because it's available now. Um, it's been out, uh, I think, was it 2017? It yes, it published? is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 So in the show notes, we'll put some links to it. Um, do you have any sort of, I guess, getting towards the final reflections or thinking about Sir Ed and anything that, you think people would be interested to know or maybe get some inspiration that isn't as well known? Um, it, it is interesting, the number of people that I've met who said, as a child, he was my hero. He, he just did have some charisma, um, which I recognize that someone like myself doesn't have, and I never will have, and it's something that was innate in him. His, his memory lives on. It, will it fade? I, it, it obviously will, because in the modern era, young people, they're not growing up with it the way people did 40 years ago. I don't know, but he's still alive and well as a very important memory up there in the Himalayas and in all sorts of parts of New Zealand still. I think that, you know, he's a, he's a person, let's keep remembering, because we do need to remember these people in New Zealand who've done amazing things there and how they did them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think 
even for, I've got four young children and I know they're growing up learning about him, probably not in the same way that he was known decades ago when there wasn't as many distractions from Mm -hmm. various sources. But I know um, for me joining this um, group called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, there's about 532 fellows who have mm. all taken on this, this um, been accepted to be fellows of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So for each of them, I know it's a big part of why they agreed to join and become part of it. And there's this sort of feeling, because we have Zoom calls and catch-ups and things, there's definitely a feeling like his presence or his character is still there kind of informing us in terms of how we are living our lives and looking particularly at the courage he displayed in his achievements, but also weighted that with the humility that it wasn't just about him, that he then used what he had to give back as well, um, which I think are really important parts of, of what he represents. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. I really appreciate it. It's, we're leading up to Christmas and I know it's a busy time for everyone. So I want to thank you so much for sharing a bit of your life story. I, I really enjoyed hearing about your childhood and the importance right from the beginning that climbing played for you, whether it was climbing up to get bird's eggs or climbing mountains. And then just hearing just a little bit about your own life, you know, making a strategic decision about what you would study to then open up that as a possibility of going overseas. And then, you know, writing a letter to this person walking to their mailbox, hand delivering it, and what that led in your own life. It sounds like it then, in a way, spiraled into many different interesting adventures that you were able to have. So I want to thank you for your time and, and sharing some insights into that relationship that you had with Sir Edmund Hillary. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's, it's been a pleasure to, um, to go over that. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. As you could probably tell, I was really interested to learn more about Sir Edmund Hillary. He's on our $5 note, and yet, and yet few of us had a connection like Michael did with him. So it was really interesting to hear his perspectives. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. And there's lots more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Mm-hmm.